great gowns, beautiful gowns. Hi, my name is Lauren Garoni. And I'm Chelsea Fairless. And welcome to another episode of the Every Outfit podcast. What are we talking about this week? There's not that much going on, actually. I know, but there's like 17 different things in the document because of Fashion Week. Yeah, there's a lot of fashion shows happening. And we do have a bit of Sex in the City news, which I guess we could lead with. It doesn't stop. And they haven't even started shooting yet. Well, now we have Hocus Pocus stuff and and just like that stuff. It's a lot. So the premiere happened for Hocus Pocus 2. And uh, the gals served some looks. It's crazy that they were all invited to the same event, <laughs> but look like they're all going completely different places. SJP wore Armani Privé, and she, of course, looks like the beautiful, radiant queen that she is. But I felt like this is something that you wear to that variety power of women luncheon, <laughs> not like a film premiere when you're the star of the movie. It's like what you wear to a film premiere if you're not the star and don't want to upstage the lead. You're the girlfriend of, maybe, of the lead actor. I did feel for this poor Vogue writer who had to make something out of this premiere and make it into an article. And the headline is, Sarah Jessica Parker channeled Carrie Bradshaw at the Hocus Pocus 2 premiere. And it's like, no. (laughs) No, she absolutely (laughs) did not. Trust me, no one understands needing to make content at nauseum, but it's like, no, she does not look like Carrie Bradshaw. Carrie Bradshaw would never wear Armani. Well, also, it's not like there's nothing to write about. Like, I could definitely write, like, several volumes about (laughs) these outfits. Yes, but Vogue wouldn't allow you to write your actual thoughts about the outfits at this premiere. That's why we have this podcast. So what were your thoughts about these three very individualistic looks? Well, Kathy Najimy, love her, by the way. No one loves Kathy Najimy more than me. I even, like, fucked with her on Veronica's Closet. Like, that's love. Why do I feel like a however is coming? (laughs) Well, she wore a black column dress that was slashed, but not in an expensive deconstructed way in like a fantasy world kind of way (laughs) in a steampunk kind of way not even steampunk it's like it's that kind of like slash jersey fabric it's like what strippers wear like that kind of slashing it's like what trickled down from punks to like avant-garde british fashion designers to mass market to strippers now it's back to being like a gown or something. Yeah, it's a real circle of life situation. You wouldn't think that Kathy Najimy, of all people, would be providing headlines, but People Magazine read an article that said, Kathy Najimy, on her support for Sarah Jessica Parker and Kim Cattrall, we can all have separate friends. What else is she going to say? I love that someone clearly had the balls to ask her, like, hey, so you're in this movie with Sarah Jessica Parker, but you're friends with Kim Cattrall. What's that about? What, is she going to pass on Hocus Pocus 2 just out of respect for Kim? She went on to say, you can love two people the same that are on, you know, different parts of the universe. <laughs> you know, two bitches who can't stand to be in the same room with each other. <laughs> also, Bette Midler, we need to talk about that. I'm going to allow you to talk about it because you are the Bette Midler stan. I am the stan and no one wants to see her pull a fierce look more than me, especially for the Hocus Pocus premiere. But this was fucked. She wore a graphic striped Christopher John Rogers dress that didn't even look good on the model in the show. Wouldn't look good on any human being that exists. And then she wore some sort of like pink headscarf that felt like a lot. You would think that maybe they would coordinate with each other. You would think. You would think potentially their red carpet outfits would commemorate or reference their costumes in the film, you know? Yeah, they all should have worn gowns. SJP definitely should have worn Vivian Westwood. Like imagine having the opportunity to and just not doing that. Bette Midler has had some really good Mark Jacobs Met Gala looks in recent years. Like, I feel like he clearly loves her and, like, gets what she's all about. And I feel like he should have just done some, like, crazy custom for her. And then Kathy Najimy could have, like, worn, like, I don't know, a nice, tasteful Michael Kors dress or something. 
I was going to say a pantsuit. Yeah, one of them could do a suit. She'd look what, whatever. She could wear whatever. Something black. I would say the biggest headline that came out of this premiere has nothing to do with Hocus Pocus and is the fact that it is claimed that Sarah Jessica Parker confirmed the return of Aiden. And so I went through and I was like, well, what did she exactly say? Like, what details can we get from this? And it's not exactly the confirmation you think it is. She replies to an ET reporter who asks, like, well, so Aiden is going to be back in the show. And she goes, could be, could be. Well, you know, I can't, like, be cryptic about it anymore. That's the quote that confirms Aiden is coming back. Oh, that's insane. She did say that season two is all about resilience, rebounding, and laughter. Which I would say, then what was season one about? (laughs) Not laughter. We've discussed this before, and I knew John Corbett had said he was going to be in season one of And Just Like That, and he was joking, but I forgot that he went as far to say, I think I might be in quite a few episodes. Yeah, that was actually psychotic of him to do that. I mean, you would have to start lying if you were asked about this at nauseum for 20 years. Yeah, it still just seems weird. It's a little awkward that he did that. Because now we can't believe him. He's the boy who cried and just like that. (laughs) Exactly. In other news, Queer as Folk, canceled by Showtime. Yet again. For a second, I was like, why is this in our Sex and the City segment of the show? And then I realized, oh, right, Kim Cattrall was in this. One of the 15 projects she has going on right now. And we will never see her have a relationship with a queer, black, non-binary character, which is unfortunate because that was the cliffhanger. So much promise. Um, Wait, is this going to be our our version of the OA? Are we just going to be on the <laughs> exits of the 101 by the Netflix offices? <laughs> Where are the Peacock offices? Bring back queer as folk. Uh, I really hope I never do anything as embarrassing as that one guy's OA protest. But yeah, that's it, right? That's all there is to talk about. I mean, they did their photos of Kristen going in for the costume fittings. It's happening in a couple of weeks. We know that production's going to start in October. Oh, also SJP went to her favorite event of the year, which is that ballet gala that they do. Kristen also came, but she had to leave early because of a family emergency, which a lot of people reported on. And that family emergency was that her stepdad died. So sorry, SJP. We're sending you love. Our sarcastic hearts go out to you. And that sucks because like that's literally like the only time she goes out all year is to that. Or, and by goes out, I mean goes out to like an event that, right. for no reason that she's not like obligated to go to like the Hocus Pocus premiere. It's also been just a full year of, of death for Sarah Jessica Parker. Wait, who else died? I mean... Oh, Willie her, Garson. Willie Garson. Her business partner. Right. Yes. Yeah. If we're, if we're calculating a year back, it's been, it's been a rough one. Yeah, that sucks. So is it time? Hi, Chelsea and Lauren. I'm calling because I just left a screening of Don't Worry Darling, and I'm very confused. Part of me really hated it, and the other part of me wants to watch it 15 more times. Please advise me on what to do. Well, definitely don't watch it again. I mean, you can. I'm sure it'll be on Hulu in like a second, but I wouldn't do it. Certainly don't watch it 15 more times. No, because... It's not the worst movie that's ever been made, but it's not a good movie. It feels like a movie, as Harry Styles famously said, but it's not an original movie, which is my main gripe. It's definitely a film that will remind you of better films you've seen before. For sure. It's not as bad as the reviews made it out to be, which might explain why the Rotten Tomato score sits at 39%, but the audience score is 77%. Because if you go in thinking that this is the worst film you're ever going to see, it's not that. To me, this is the worst kind of bad movie in the sense that if you just shifted some things a few degrees, it actually would be a very subversive, genre-defining film. But it didn't really have a good script, which was the big problem. I mean, there were, there were a lot of missed opportunities, but for people that haven't seen this, haven't seen the trailer perhaps, 
It is basically a film where Florence Pugh plays a 50s housewife. Harry Styles is her husband. He has some mysterious job. He goes to work every day. And they live in this just like Slim Aarons-esque world. Quite literally. They use the house that is in that very famous Slim Aarons photo. Yeah. And everything is good. But then I guess, how do you say it? Florence Pugh gets a bad vibe. (laughs) She starts to suspect that things aren't as they seem or aren't as perfect as they seem. Yeah, that you certainly get in the trailer. I guess my non-spoiler one-sentence review of this film is Don't Worry Darling is for people who thought Midsummer was too weird. Yeah, totally. It feels very similar to Midsummer in terms of Florence Pugh's performance because she's similarly uncomfortable in both films. We're definitely going to spoil the twist in Don't Worry Darling. So if you want to see this movie and don't want to have that ruined for you, you can skip to wherever Lauren tells you to skip to in the future. Hi guys, it's Lauren from the future. Now, if you don't want to get spoiled, please skip ahead to the 29 minute and 34 second mark. So there's not much of a plot in this film, which is a big problem. So I will say that in the original script that was rewritten by Olivia Wilde's screenwriter who wrote Booksmart, the reveal happens midway through the film, which I feel like in the this year of our Lord 2022, you can't do these Sixth Sense-esque reveals at the end of the film anymore. People are too savvy. We've seen too many movies. And beyond that, just from an audience perspective, it's going to get fucking spoiled anyway. Right. But tell the people, what's the reveal? So, I mean, I do feel half vindicated that I was correct. It is not the 1950s. However, I would never have dared guess that the, <laughs> that the explanation is that they're living in a simulation, that their weird incel husbands have put them in. You were mostly right, though, because you thought it would be like the village. And the twist in the village is that all of these damaged, fucked up people created a society that's very insular, that's based on the past because they can't cope with the modern world. And that's basically what Don't Worry Darling is. And the problem is, in a weird way, their attempts at feminism hurt the storytelling. Because if the reveal is that these men have non-consensually put these women in this digital world, then why the fuck is Harry Styles going down on Florence Pugh at the beginning of this film? True. That was hot, actually. I feel like that was a highlight of the film. Or at least felt a little different or something. Chelsea, that was the first two minutes of the movie. (laughs) Well, first of all, men would never create a world that looks like this. Men don't give a shit about slim errands or palm springs or any of that shit unless they're gay and that's a fact you needed nick kroll or someone to be the gay architect of the world (laughs) it's so true but also i don't get it because you don't have to be in a simulation anyone can move to palm springs and pretend like it's the 50s in fact many people have And I may be one of them at some point. You're like, you know what? This victory project doesn't seem too bad. But if incels were actually designing this world, it would be popcorn ceilings. It would be overstuffed sofas. It would be an uncomfortable amount of supreme home goods in a single space. It would be disgusting. I'm sorry, straight men, but you understand like your people don't have the most um, refined taste in interiors. Let's be real. Or it would look like an MMA octagon and women would have beer-flavored tits. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, it would be like an MMA ring or something. But this is, and again, as white women who like to think of themselves as feminists, I get, this is like the worst version of that because it's very clear that the director and the writer of this film were like, you know what the worst thing ever is? If men keep listening to Joe Rogan and make a video game that p- that they put women in and they have no autonomy. Well, whatever. At least they have like fabulous outfits designed by Ariane Phillips. It could be way worse. For those who haven't seen the film and are not going to, this reveal does not happen until 15 minutes before the film ends. And it's not an hour and 30 minute film. It's a two hour movie. 
So you're spending an hour and 45 minutes with just a lot of weird shit happening that, by the way, is never explained. You see this in the trailer, when she crushes an egg and it's empty, is that a glitch in the system? Yeah, what's the plane thing? What's the thing with the plane? We never found out about that. Which is a motif in the fucking poster too. You see an airplane crashing down. This isn't the film's fault, but everything about this movie that is creepy, surreal, and visually interesting is in the trailer. You go into it thinking there's going to be more of that. There's not because you've already seen everything. You've seen her saran wrapping her face. You've seen her getting crushed by the window that she's cleaning. It's already been put out into the universe. The other problem is Olivia Wilde said the inspiration for this film was Truman Show, Matrix, obviously Stepford Wives as well. But the problem is by mid at 30, sorry, I'm going to be Garoni screenwriter here, but like mid at 30 of the Matrix, they explain the rules of the world. As the Truman Show happens, you know as much as the producer Ed Harris of that world. You know more than Truman does. We are as blind as Florence Pugh, even though as an audience we know, well, it isn't the 1950s, but what is it? Yeah. So Harry Styles is an incel with long stringy hair. Okay, but when you say incel, just to clarify, he is in a relationship with Florence Pugh. It's not that she won't fuck him. It's that she's a doctor and she works really long shifts at the hospital and she doesn't feel like fucking him sometimes when she comes home after like a 30-hour shift. It's not like he's never been fucked. And to be fair, we only get one scene about what their life was like before they went into this world or before he drugged her and chained her like she's a girl interrupted patient to their bed. <laughs> and again, this is where it's like a feminist view of misogyny where they're trying to be feminist but also represent misogynistic ideas at the same time, which is they portray that he is annoyed that she's working too much and doesn't have time for him. But then when she realizes what's happening, where somehow she can see a flashback only from Harry Styles' perspective. That is how it's explained, by the way. Is she seeing his perspective of what he did to her, which does not make any logical sense. He screams at her that he does this for her. And another thing that doesn't make any sense, that if men really did create a, a simulation where women are like fuckbots for them, they leave every morning. That's where they go. Because they, they go back into the real world. To do something to pay for this, which they never show. It's the same logic problem that Severance has, you know? Because it's like, what person wouldn't want the distraction of their work if they have a miserable personal life, you know? Which they all do. Fine. You want to do all of that story. I'm with you, personally. I think you should have revealed that at page 50 and then had all of the women in the village start to figure that out together and then band together and get the fuck out of that world. Yeah, they needed to have like a women talking moment. <laughs> Even though we haven't seen this film, but we assume. In the Palm Springs Community Center. That was the other thing, I think, being from Los Angeles, it's hard to envision this as some sort of like idyllic utopia because... You're just like, oh, that's Palm Springs. Like, that's like an hour and a half drive. Like, are we going to stop at the outlet mall before or after we go to Palm Springs? <laughs> the, yeah, exactly. I think that was actually the biggest missed opportunity here because she could have created a world that had a very specific visual language that maybe referenced the past, but had elements of it that were unexpected. I think The Handmaid's Tale does a really good job of creating a highly specific environment that is rooted in historical things, but does not feel cliche. It also made me think of the Stephen Frears film, The Grifters, where he had so many different clashing elements, where the production style looked like it was from the 70s, the costumes from the 40s, the cars from the 80s, so you couldn't decide what time period it was, which is another way to go with this film. Because it literally looks like... Slim Errands is great, you know, that's a, a fabulous and classic style, but it is cliche at this point. It's too on, it was way too on the nose, everything about the way this looked. So I also thought, coming out of Venice, I heard a bunch of reviews that were like, oh, actually it's more the Truman Show than the Matrix. So I was like, okay, so maybe it's what I think it is, which is they've all been brainwashed and they're living in this perfect 1950s utopia. 
But what's happening in our modern world is it's a reality show. It's being beamed into people's homes, like some Fox Network show to show people a 1950s ideal and lifestyle. Like some Pleasantville shit. Right. Which is another better version of this movie that kind of addresses a lot of similar things while being an original film with a point of view. That's the thing. It doesn't feel like it has a strong point of view. And between this and Booksmart, I'm not getting auteur, you know? Like, I loved Booksmart. I thought that was a great movie. But I don't know if Olivia Wilde, as a director, is a vibe. So she is not a screenwriter like a Greta Gerwig, like a Sofia Coppola, but she has worked on both films with Katie Silberman, who I assume she's sort of dictating and sitting in meetings with her going, I think we should do this. I think we should do that. We haven't even gotten to the craziest part, which is the end end of the film, which is that Florence Pugh does indeed escape. Does she? Yes, that's the whole thing is we see in these flashbacks that Harry Styles has had to, I think I previously said this, like she is locked in restraints. So once she wakes up, which by the way, the writers didn't have to put Florence Pugh in restraints. The ending of the film is her quote unquote getting out. It goes to a black screen. You hear her exhale as if she's exhaling, you assume in the real world. But why they've just ended the film is, I assume they don't want to explain, well, how does she get out of the restraints? Because, sorry, guys, she murders Harry Styles, which they then tell you 15 minutes before the the movie ends. If they die in a simulation, they die in real life. Right. It could have had a much darker human centipede type ending (sighs) where she just wakes up in the restraints, gagged or something. Harry Styles is dead and no one's going to find her and she's just screaming or something. At least that would feel cunty. What you're saying is the reverse of how Ex Machina ends, which is Alicia Vikander's Ava character gets out and kills her master, kills Oscar Isaac, and leaves Domo Gleeson to to starve to death by himself in this chamber where no one's going to find him. It would be a way cooler ending. I get that sometimes in a horror film, having a non-ending can be impactful. Like, I think it worked really well in a film like Picnic at Hanging Rock, but this is not Picnic at Hanging Rock. Or the original Stepford Wives, which does have a down ending where everyone becomes a Stepford Wife. Yeah, and what a fascinating and chilling ending to a film. There was no moment in this film where everything came together and you get chills in that way that you get at the end of Stepford Wives. Or you do the Mad Max Fury Road ending where all the women band together and they kill all of their husbands and they exit the world together. I'm not saying that any of these elements that they chose to do wouldn't have worked, but it needs something else. You need to do that reveal halfway through the film. You need to build all of this paranoia about who knows. Do I know? Do you know? Do we all know? Right. So the reveal, again, 12 minutes before the film ends, is that Olivia Wilde has known the entire time that this is a simulation. She purposely chose to go into this world because she lost her children in the real world because she says, this is the only way I get to have my kids, which is a storyline that would work if not for the fact that for the entire, <laughs> the entirety of the film, she's like, fuck these kids. She fucking hates her kids. It's so weird. Like, if anything, you get the sense that, like, Florence Pugh is the only person that actually plays with them because, like, she's their next door neighbor. Yeah. It is weird. Although I think that was the coolest and most shocking reveal of all. Of course, but how much cooler would it have been if Olivia Wilde is like, you know what, this is super fucked up. These women don't know what's going on. I'm going to wake myself up. If she's screaming at Florence Pugh, where do you live? Try to remember. And she's the one that frees her and they all free each other and, you know, together have autonomy back over their bodies. That sounds great, Lauren, but... That's not what <laughs> that's not what happened, but shall we reflect on the good aspects of this film? Olivia Wilde as an actress and that character, great. The most interesting character I think in the movie. Harry Styles as an actor, not as bad as everyone was saying, I think. I don't think he was great, but I don't think that he torpedoed this film with terrible acting. No, I and I do want to apologize, guys. He is British in the film. But he elected to become British in the simulation. His character in the real world is not British, which is just like an insane thing to do. 
Which again, I thought the thing was gonna be that he would slip into a British accent and that was one of the ways that Florence Pugh realizes that something's wrong in this world. Right. Yeah, I think he was fine, although I was exchanging voice memos with the girls from the See Also podcast and one of them said that Harry Styles holds a glass of whiskey like it's an iPhone and it's so true. It's so true. Uh, but I guess that works if they live in the modern world. Yeah. So that does that does make sense. You know, Chell, Olivia Wilde's working on levels we just don't understand, okay? Also, I will say, Chris Pine way too worked over in the face to plausibly live in the 50s. I'm sorry. We have to stop casting people with a lot of face work in period films. It's not, it's not right. I think that's just how his face looks. Honey, have you seen his face? Are you serious? You don't think he's gotten fillers or Botox? I mean, he does look like he's melting a little bit, but... He has a different face, Lauren. Like, he has... You have face blindness. You don't even know what he looks like. He looks like someone that got into a car accident and just had to have, like, facial reconstruction. So they, like... It wasn't that severe, but they never looked the same again. The Monty Cliff? (laughs) It's there's something weird about it and it takes you out of the period. It's like Kate Blanchett having a gel manicure in Carol. It just unravels things. Another thing that I feel like we should mention, what the fuck would Shia LaBeouf been doing in the Harry Styles role? He would make sense as like a pseudo incel. You know, his incel make under is really stunning because they just kind of made him sweaty. Like they just gave him this like grimy layer of sweat and then fucked up his hair. No, he has gross long hair and a beanie, which that would make sense for the twist because I believe Shia LaBeouf would do this to his wife, but I can't see Shia LaBeouf being a 1950s perfect husband. I could see him in the Chris Pine pseudo cult leader role. I don't know. At least he has a face that could exist in any time period. That's all I have to say. Should we get into Kiki Lane's minimized role in this film? Sure. So I don't have much to say about it. She was barely in it. And she did an Instagram post where she said the best thing about the film was meeting her now partner, who was her husband in the film, because other than that, all their scenes got cut. Yeah, I do wonder if there was more to that story because we weren't shown much as an audience. But I would never think that that would be a character that would have a meteor role. The character's function is to explain, signify to Florence Pugh that something is wrong. But you know, actually... What the highlight of this was, was Kate Berlant, who I believe we forgot to talk about when we discussed A League of Their Own, which she's also excellent in. This is someone that has a face that can exist in period films, and I hope that people continue to cast her in them as they have done in A League of Their Own and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and now this, because she is just such a wonderful comedic presence in this film. And I wonder, though, because she's pregnant, it's like, is she always pregnant? Does she ever give birth? Once you learn it's a simulation, which is way too late in the film, there are all of these funny what-ifs that could be Truman Show-esque. The perennially pregnant Caper Land, the system rebooting. Oh, here's another thing you could do. If you want to dramatize elements of men's personalities that we see in culture, wouldn't it be interesting if the Chris Pine character, who I assume designed the simulation, question mark? Yeah. My voice is going up because I am asking a question. If they only built so much of the world and that's why all these glitches are happening because they didn't prepare for anything beyond just the first level of doing the simulation. Right. And it's all collapsing around them. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, we'll never know, Lauren. And the thing that upsets me the most genuinely is this just gives more ammunition for studios not to greenlight one original film's female-fronted films, female-fronted original scripts of genre movies that are mid-sized budgets. Because it's not going to make its money back. Do you think so? Because I feel like everyone is talking about it. It only made $19 million, and I guarantee you in the second week, I'm sure it will have a 60% drop-off in box office. Well, how much should this movie make to be considered successful? Well, it was supposed to cost $35 million, and I think it cost 50 And for movies to break even with marketing, it should make three times the budget. Yikes. 
That's why films either cost $1 million or $100 million. Somehow that math makes sense. (laughs) Don't ask me how. Well, I feel like we've been talking about Don't Worry Darling for a hot minute. See it or don't see it. I don't really care. (laughs) I have no opinion. I mean, you've been listening to everything we've said. Buy a ticket so that studios will keep allowing female directors to make genre movies, but don't actually see this movie. Go watch Midsummer again. Yeah, go go stream Book Smart in Midsummer. <laughs> On to fashion. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about Milan Fashion Week in a hot minute, but before we get into that, we have some news. We have some big news from London. Pip Pip Cheerio. Ricardo Tisci is out at Burberry and being replaced by Daniel Lee, formerly from uh, Bottega Veneta. I did make a joke about Ricardo Tisci being fine for postponing his show because of the Queen's funeral. And once it did debut, it really did feel like a final collection because the show debuted and they had not made that announcement yet. And it was like, wow, these are all of his central theses for Burberry in one collection. Yeah, he really put his pussy in that show, literally, you know? I can't describe the cutouts of these dresses, but I'm sure that Kim Kardashian or Kendall Jenner will wear one soon. We've discussed this before, and it just was putting Ricardo Tisci at Burberry at the time made sense to kind of make it more of a streetwear fuckboy label. Yeah, they, because at the time, people were really buying the stuff that he was, the t-shirts that he was designing for Givenchy. And also, he's good at making gowns and like red carpet shit. So it is, in theory, the total package. They couldn't have predicted the quiet luxury, row-esque, exquisite tailoring heritage brand where Burberry is a legit heritage brand. I think that Ricardo Tisci is a really great designer. I know we've talked shit about Burberry, but I think that that combination of person and brand just never made sense. It never made sense. I mean, his appointment makes a little more sense when you realize that the CEO of Burberry at the time was the former Givenchy CEO, Marco Gubetti, who... All the Italians are going to get up in my ass. They're like, it's Gobetti. <laughs> what are you doing? I and- know sometimes we mispronounce things because we don't want to do that. Because that seems worse yeah. than just doing it with our LA accents. But the, the CEO that was formerly at Burberry was with Ricardo Tisci at Givenchy, went over to Ferragamo. So I don't think he had anyone championing him anymore. Also, someone had to hire Daniel Lee. And that makes sense. I'm actually excited for Burberry now because you know the trench coats are going to be amazing. And he's really great at designing accessories, which is something that they've never been able to do correctly. Or they've never had an it bag. Yeah, I was going to say they've never had a signature bag. Or they've never had a shoe that you just like everyone's crazy about. Daniel Lee takes over October 3rd. So we'll see probably a resort collection before fall, winter, and February? I don't know. We'll see. But I do think the timing of the announcement was pretty rude to Ricardo Tisci. Like, I get that he should have presented this collection a week and a half before, but couldn't because of the queen dying. But it's like he did this collection, and then, what, three days later, (laughs) they announced Daniel Lee? It's like, that doesn't give anyone enough time or the press enough time to really focus on this collection at all. Also, I thought it was random that Kanye was there because I get that they're friends, but I feel like I haven't seen him at a Givenchy fashion show in years. But now that makes sense because he obviously knew it was his last collection. Right. And he wanted to go backstage and say hi to everyone. Yeah. But the reason that I bring up what I think was one of the reasons Ricardo Tisci kind of got pushed out of Burberry is his former CEO, who he's known since the Givenchy days, went over to Ferragamo, which debuted this season with a new designer, Maximilian Davis, who is this 27-year-old wunderkind. <laughs> is who... that wunderkind? Wunderkind. Again, we know, guys, we can't pronounce anything. It's part of our charm, question mark. What I find amazing is that Maximilian left the LVMH designer competition to take the job at Ferragamo, which is a really boss move. He's like, I don't need this shit. Yeah, and he's already done a full rebrand of the logo. They've dropped the Salvador from the name. It's just Ferragamo. It got a Lueve-esque 
all caps yeah logo i kind of don't know what to say about the show i think i might actually have no opinion about it at all it's a good first collection i'm very thankful that we're not the people that write up the reviews for vogue runway because sometimes we don't have an opinion on show it's a good first collection i like the back half of it but it didn't excite me necessarily but at the same time there's actually like a lot of just nice wearable simple clothes Which I felt like this season was full of nice wearable clothes. Yeah. And some crazy shit, which we'll get into. So Matu Blasi presented his latest collection for Bottega Veneta, which featured a pretty iconic Kate Moss make-under. Much like the Emrata J.W. Anderson make-under, Kate Moss appeared with loose hair, jeans, and a flannel shirt. Except, like it was all made of leather. Yes. So the flannel shirt required 12 layers of prints to to achieve the depth of color Blasi was after. It's this kind of casual comfort, and we put it to an extreme that we call perverse banality, which I just love that phrase, perverse banality. Okay, whatever. Although I must say 73 looks is too many. I agree. I think there was good stuff in this show. I liked the first half more than the last half, although he brought it back with that trio of fringe dresses at the very end, which were gorgeous. But I don't know. This is his second collection, and he's established himself as a Phoebe Philo-type designer. He's kind of taken out the sportiness that Daniel Lee brought to the brand. Like he's not making rubber shoes. He's not making parkas. He's not making all of that stuff, which does kind of suck because that was kind of a good, I think that was a good thing for that brand. And certainly while not being streetwear was something that was respected by the people that were into that. And now he's kind of come in and brought it back to the roots of Bottega. Like this is much closer to the heritage of the brand than anything that Daniel Lee was doing for sure. But it also looks like what moms in Brentwood would want to wear to seem relatable picking up their children at preschool. Yeah. And also just like what people that work in the fashion industry, like this is how they want to look. Right. They love this shit. They will buy this shit. And I'm sure there's going to be absolutely beautiful things in the stores. But uh, you're not sold. No, no, I'm not. I'm not saying that I'm not sold. I liked I liked this show. I did. I'm just saying I maybe prefer Daniel Lee, although who knows? Michu also worked on all of those collections. So who's to say? That's true. All right. On to Prada. Sure. There are so many versions of Prada, and I feel like recent collections have been picking a few and then reinterpreting them. Like, I felt like the first half of this collection was very that late 90s corporate drone Prada mixed in with the late aughts jewel tone brushed metal satin and silk dresses. Mm -hmm. There's no bad Prada shows. They don't exist. I've yet to see one. I hope I never see one. And... They're always so compelling because Musha Prada is so ahead of pretty much everyone. And part of the reason why she's so ahead is that she's taking things that are completely out of style and throwing them back on the runway, as is the case with the extremely skinny pants that were in the first section of this show. I have a very conflicted relationship with skinny pants and skinny jeans because it often makes me look like I'm like stuffing little Vienna sausages in pants. Yeah, well, these are very skinny. I'm not just saying like a slim fit tapered. Like this is like, this is crazy. And every other designer has been avoiding this like the plague. And especially designers like Mathieu, like uh, the row, whatever. So it's interesting to see that. But I'm sure we'll all be wearing those fucking skinny pants in five years. Because again, Musha always knows. All right, Philip Plein. I don't understand why a Euro trash consumer wants to dress like a rocker. Rock stars don't even want to dress like this now. Well, I mean, Tommy Lee was there. (laughs) Tommy Lee opened the show in what was a a fun bit of stunt casting, followed by Paris Jackson. I will say this is one of the most chaotic Vogue reviews, if I may. I didn't actually read it, so please. The first paragraph. Phil Pline is planning to go on the road once again to bring his all-inclusive, non-reclusive brand of fashion mayhem back to New York Fashion Week next February for the first time since 2018. That will follow a new store opening in Soho. And before that, this November, he's cooking up a resort show to remember in Paris. But tonight was about his first full show back in Milan. 
what? <laughs> Clearly. Why are you telling me about like their expansion plans in New York? I'm definitely not going to that store. Also, don't they already have one on Mercer Street or did I just make that up? Uh, that seems likely, but I love that clearly this Vogue reviewer just had nothing to say about the show and took like whatever was in the PR notes that the designer provided and was like, Ooh, I'll just pat it out with this. Yeah, I feel bad for all journalists that have to go to these shows because I get it like Philip Klein for better or worse, like it has a consumer. There are people that wear this. I know I just saw them vacationing in Mykonos. <laughs> But fashion industry people are just never going to care, never going to respect this. So at least he gave them Tommy Lee. At least there was something happening. I know. I love a label that I know is successful, but I don't know a single person who wears it. No, it's not. It's not for us. I don't even know if it's for Americans. I, well, I felt like the first half of the show that was all the leather and, and black and white looks. I know that Kravis doesn't wear him, but the first half of the collection really did look like a physical manifestation of them as a couple. I'm sure Kravis has some Philip Pline. Come on. The fake Margiela crystal masks really put me into a full tailspin. That was really, <laughs> that was really bold of them. But uh, anyway, speaking of stunt casting, Versace... Yes. Versace wins with that Paris Hilton finale because I don't think any other fashion show generated a moment that was that viral, but also just like a, a satisfying outfit. She looked amazing. She was a pink bride in a little crystal mini dress. Yeah, I mean, she did that with Jennifer Lopez rewearing the iconic Versace dress 20 years after she wore the dress to the Grammys, so... This wasn't tied to anything really historical, but it was just kind of perfect. Yeah. What did you think of starting the spring collection with 14 black looks that were very un-Versace-like? Yeah, it's, the show opened with Gigi in some like hooded bodycon thing. We're seeing a lot of hoods. We're also seeing them at YSL, which we'll get into next week. And of course, Katie Holmes's iconic Michael Kors look. Do you think Azadine Elia is rolling over in his grave? He's like, I created that. Well, it is funny just because Elia is having a moment under a new creative director, but they haven't really gone there yet, I don't think. But I'm sure when they do, it'll be major. I'm sure he's pissed about it. I also really liked seeing Bella Hadid as the purple bride. Like, not since Dita Von Teese's wedding look have I seen such an iconic purple bride. That's right. And I just love colored wedding looks on the runway in general. Like, when Meetem Kirchhoff was around, they did a lot of really amazing ones. And this kind of reminded me of that. Also, it was interesting to see crinkled satin enter into the Versace lexicon because... Donatelle Versace is, like, not one of those designers that, like, finds beauty in imperfection. Like, it's just not. Well, I saw some TikTok videos of people saying that that was, that that wasn't done on purpose, that they just didn't steam the dresses. Oh, come on. Yeah, it's like, really? You think they let that go by? No, this is, like, them doing grunge, basically, but the Versace bridal version of that. Which is interesting because typically couture shows end with a bridal look. But I like that we're bringing this into ready to wear. I will say, as a short person, I am never here for a look that is uh, slacks and then a full-length dress. That is a silhouette I cannot pull off. I understand that I shouldn't rate fashion. No, you can't. (laughs) Based on what I would personally wear. I'm just putting that out there, though. Because... Versace isn't for us and it it does what it does and it's it's definitely not a brand like Prada that's consistently pushing fashion forward it is serving the Versace girl who is Paris Hilton so great let's get into Gucci okay no this was the stunt casting I was gonna say if you want to talk about stunt casting no celebrities but something out of a Stanley Kubrick dream come play with us Danny come play with us Alessandro so the Gucci show featured 69 sets of identical twins what the fuck I would love to watch a documentary about the casting process because how did they find these people? It's not just twins, but it's twins that could be Gucci models, which is a very specific 
look. And none of these twins looked out of place. They all looked like they could be at a Gucci show. I know. And this is just a natural escalation from the show that he had where it was the person's head that they were holding as well. Right. So it feels like this is a logical conclusion to that, which is just the same person well, also again. He, yeah, well, also he went to the Met Gala as twins with Jared Leto. So clearly this is just like something that he's preoccupied with. His mother was a twin. Oh. Which is the origin story of this collection, which is cool. But yeah, while the twins were cool, not my favorite Gucci collection. I mean, there's always beautiful clothes. There's no Gucci show that doesn't have absolutely stunning clothes and bags and shoes etc but i don't know the 80s stuff the styling the face chains like it i just didn't vibe with it although i vibe with the gremlins it's tough because you have so many new designers like a matthew or maximilian davis who are either debuting their second collections their first collections so it's tough when you have such an idiosyncratic look and this is your 10th year eighth year on the runway because i don't know how you evolve it's gucci and it's good and I want those halter pants or whatever they were the garter pants that were like black pants that were separated by a garter but Mm, you know what the pant that I loved was that was actually a a Tom Ford pant that they brought back was it's like a pair of low slung straight leg trousers but it has like a thong straps coming up the sides with little rhinestone Gucci logos I think those were in the Tom Ford like elevator sex ads, Gucci ads from the 90s. I might be wrong, but that's major. And that is like an investment piece if I've ever seen one. So it's like, yeah, of course, like there's beautiful pieces throughout this show. But yeah, the styling was just way too much. Moschino? You know, why not? Sure. He took the theme of inflation. This is what he said backstage, Jeremy Scott. Everybody's talking about inflation. The cost of everything's going up. Housing, food, life. So I took inflation into the collection. It's like by making flotation devices. Yeah, a lot of these clothes were partially inflatable. Half clothes, half inflatables. Yeah, I don't know. I think Jeremy Scott's greatest strength is throwing a fashion show. The spectacle is is his art form. It really is magical in a specific way because these fashion shows always do feel like they're out of 80s movies or something. This one especially. And I like the first section which had a lot of heart motifs which was very like Ginger Rogers in Carefree wore a very specific outfit like this that then Elsa Scaparelli did a version of. And I like to see him explore that and sort of build it out into a whole section of looks. Also a lot of Patrick Kelly influences coming into here as always and then yeah the second half was this beverly hills rich bitch at the pool vibe it felt very much and i can't wait for him to truly just do an entire collection based on the fashion show at the end of don't tell mom the babysitter's dead yeah i'm surprised he hasn't done one because the theme of that fashion show was occupation so it was like bell hops why am I only remembering Food bellhops? service people. By the way, I love that you think it's a theme and not that it was a company that made uniforms oh, for right, the service right. industry. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> I did forget about that. Thank you. You're like, how novel. It's like, it's an homage to the working class. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> These are just insane costumes. <laughs> the Mosquito Show is not an homage to the working class. No. That much I will say is everything but that. Diesel. Do you know the details that went on behind the scenes? Like there was a sex toy given in the invite, which they've done for two seasons now. That's cool. They gave a commemorative NFT and then they gave away 3,000 free tickets. 1,600 were reserved for students. I think that's so cool. That's really cool. Anyway, I just wanted you to- you got to have the youth come in. Diesel is all about youth. Who else would buy this much bleached denim? Not us, that's for sure. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Although I did like the show and I do applaud what he's doing with Diesel generally. And I also like the micro minis that he's doing that carried over from the previous season that basically just look like giant belts. Like Paris Hilton said, skirts should be the size of belts. He said that the collection was divided into four chapters, denim, utility wear, pop, and extravaganza. It was kind of all denim though. 
Yeah. Like, actually. I did enjoy that, like the Valentino couture show from the summer, there was just one singular model in glitter face. Yeah, what is this about? I don't know where this comes from. Blue Marine? Loved it when I saw this as a teenager in the early 2000s. I somehow was too young to wear it when it was originally stylish, and I'm too old to wear it now that it's come back into style. <laughs> it's so true. You know, they called the writers after World War I the lost generation. We're the lost fashion generation, <laughs> us millennials. But Dua Lipa will find plenty of things to wear. No brand is going as far as Blue Marine into the early 2000s aesthetic. Like, no one is going this far. It's crazy. But a lot of people want to dress like this. Like, this is clothes for the same girls that are buying that hobo version of the Balenciaga motorcycle bag. Oh, yeah. This is for Ivy Getty and Ivy Getty alone. <laughs> yeah, or like 18-year-olds. All of these clothes look like stuff that, like, Britney, Christina, Destiny's Child would have worn in their heyday. I think the saddest thing is that the MTV awards are not what they used to be because you're right, the back half of this collection are just outfits that are meant for the 2003 MTV Music Video Awards. You're right, this is like VMA's only clothes. Although I do think their little handbags are cute. I haven't ever seen anyone wearing them in the world, so I don't know how well they're actually doing, but... Also, the first look of this show was pretty major. It was like a studded cross-shaped top. It looked like something Cher would have worn back in the day. That or Mila Jovovich's Band-Aid outfit from Fifth Element. Because yes, it's just covering totally. all the important it's stuff. The exact midpoint of Cher in some wacky Chrome Hearts outfit and that. Trisardi. I'm not familiar with this label. Well, it's been around for 10,000 years because it's a heritage label, but it's one that no one cares about. Right. So it's like they've been having shows forever. We just like didn't care. And up until recently, it was designed by someone in the Trisardi family. So I have no idea. But they just brought in last season the two guys that started GMBH who are now trying to make it into a cool brand, essentially. And, you know, I think they're moving in a good direction. I don't know if I liked this show as much as I liked their first show. I can't remember if we talked about it last season or not. No. But there's some cool pieces. It's also a lower price point than most luxury brands. Like their bags are under $1,000, which I think is needed. I'm into this because I feel like it's speaking to me, who is someone that would like the row, but a more body conscious, thoughtier version of the row. So this collection speaks to me. Yeah. And like Blue Marine, they're bringing back the early aughts crop top with like freakishly long angel sleeves. We just recorded the Patreon episode about Crossroads recently, and I don't believe we discussed that top that she wears at the end when she performs I'm Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman, but oh. this is very that. Oh, you mentioned the butterfly sleeves. Oh, I did. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I think we're going to see some of these clothes on celebs, but we'll see what happens. I hope stylists are paying attention to these collections. They're very good. And we have one more, one last show to talk about. Cue the theme. Kardash, a holics anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. <laughs> I'm like, what collection are we talking about? <laughs> of course. Ciao Kim. <laughs> so Kim Kardashian collaborated with Dolce and Gabbana on their fashion show. She selected what felt like a million looks from the archive, 80 something archival Dolce and Gabbana pieces that they remade, threw on the runway, and each look also had a little woven tag which said what collection it was originally from. I'm not gonna lie, this really, this collection really felt like the dog ate my homework. It really felt like two weeks before it debuted, they were like, oh shit, should we ask like Kim to be a part of this? Like, we don't really have an idea. See, I was into it. Like, Dolce is very good at doing what they do. Again, this is not a brand that is pushing fashion forward right now, necessarily. They're just trying not to get canceled again. Well, I definitely don't think they care about that. But they're good at making these kind of body con clothes. And people love that shit. People buy it. Again, I don't know how much fashion industry people care. 
but they have a consumer and that consumer is Kim. And I think that a lot of these clothes do hold up. I just feel like the show ran a bit long as all Dolce shows do. You would know. And I, th- <laughs> and I think that the biggest missed opportunity with this show was not in design, but was in casting because all of these models were tall and rail thin. So nothing looked like Kim. No one looked like Kim although, in this show that was all about Kim. Although Kim is increasingly rail thin, but I agree with you. She may be rail thin, but she still has an insane waist to hip ratio, which none of these models had. If I was producing this show, I would want it to be like a handful of normal models. Then we need some like friends and family. Like Dolce shows, they always put like families on the runway. Why not have true and Chloe or North and Chris in the show. Chloe was there. Why not have models that we associate with Kim, like Winnie Harlow or Emrata or Haley Bieber or something? Why couldn't they have models that were like in these shows originally that are a bit older, you know, like Cindy Crawford or Yasmin Gori or something? Which is also weird because Kim has put those OG models and even Kate Moss in Skims campaigns. Exactly. I feel like Skims has set a precedent for casting that did not come through here, so it didn't feel like her necessarily because there were no women with curvy bodies, except for a couple, in the show. And obviously that completely changes the way that these clothes look. Again, I say it feels like two weeks before the show, they were like, oh shit, we got to do something. Let's ask him. I don't know. I think it was a very considered collab and Kim managed like she brought on that creative agency that does skin and necessaire they did all of the campaign images all of the graphics all of the text like that was all her had nothing to do with Dolce and then she just picked stuff from the archive but I also think that we needed her doing the finale in that leopard look that was at the end of the show that was quite spectacular. Yeah, I didn't need her to do a very measured Tom Ford-esque wave at the top of the runway at the end of the show. Yeah. Oh, you know who also should have been in the show? A few Kim clones. Because we see these girls all the time living in LA, but there are women that look exactly like her that have gotten surgery, whatever, to look exactly like her. So I feel like having some fake Kims would have been kind of cool and like would have given like Eminem's VMA performance of real Slim Shady vibes. All right, shall we talk about the latest episode? Sure. When we sat down, you asked me if I had watched the episode. It's like, of course I have. Well, I don't know. It wasn't in the doc. Like we didn't really talk about it. I love that they had to put a whole ass title card and be like, just so everyone knows, that previous episode was something completely different. So now everything you're going to see for the rest of the season is six months previous. Right, because apparently the whole time they filmed this show, she had her and Tristan were still together or whatever. Or Chloe just never wanted to share until Or she was July. just keeping it in. yeah. Which again, this show is so in the past. It is bizarre to see Kim fronting the Dolce & Gabbana show and then have an episode six months previous, which is her going to Milan again, but for the Prada show. That staged Prada conversation where she was on the phone with Kendall. Prada you? Was insane. It was like, hey, are you in the show? And she's like, maybe. Like, that was like one of the fakest things we've seen since the Hulu show started. I mean, I guess it's true, but I would have thought that Kendall is just going from show to show. But I forget that she's very selective because she went on Kim's private plane (laughs) to get to the show. So I guess she didn't do anything in London and was only doing one show in Milan and I guess went to Paris. Yeah, I feel like she usually does like a couple tops. I mean, she should have been in Chow Kim also. Come on. The one thing that I do like from that, you are correct, completely scripted Prada you conversation with Kendall is that Kim just starts talking to camera. Right. Like it's suddenly become a mockumentary of the Kardashians. Why not? I don't think that's a bad direction for them to go in. I really liked the the scene where Kim and Chloe are both in identical black skin tight outfits. Like they look like they're out of like a Russ Myers film or something. They have the same exact hair and 
like they're just sitting on the bed and Kim's like, Chloe, you're really, really skinny. Like, what's going on? Like, how fucked up are you? Which is insane because it's not even as skinny as Chloe is going to get. No. Which you've heard that it's... The prevailing rumor is that they took that diabetes 2 drug, Ozeptra? Ozeptrix? I don't know what it's called. But is that the injection one that everyone takes? Yeah. Yes. Every celebrity does this, by the way, to lose weight. But now that the word is out, there's now a shortage of that drug. Right. That makes sense. Anyway, here are the notes I took. Why is Courtney always on the floor? She's having... That's a- so true. Last season, we got a scene of her eating lunch. I mean, she... In had- her bedroom. On not, the floor yeah, not with just, a friend, like not by herself. With Steph Shep. Yeah, I, their chef put a meal on the floor for her and Steph Shep. And it's like, okay, maybe that's their thing. But then she's having this meeting about her wedding and they're going through documents. And it's not even like they're around a table on the floor. They're just literally throwing out sheets on the ground. It's like, don't you live in a 12,000 square foot house? Why are you acting like me when I lived in a studio apartment? (laughs) Yeah, they're trying to select her wedding dress. They're like... Dolce is one of the designers we're considering like as if like that wasn't just planned but whatever that's why moments where they break the fourth wall they're talking to camera is what keeps it going because it is so scripted that it's maddening you love to talk about how in movies and tv there are no stakes there's truly no stakes watching the Kardashians. It's like, we already know what your wedding dress looks like. And you're blurring out all your inspiration other than this Monica Bellucci photo. Yeah. But she did say that she wanted to have the Virgin Mary on the back of Travis's head, his tattoo, to be like somehow incorporated into her look, which was kind of the standout thing about her veil, right? Right. But people already clock that within an hour of the wedding taking place. But fine. The other thing in that conversation between Chloe and Kim is you were remarking last week that the darkest thing is when Kim is crying in her speech to Chloe and she's like, you're going to be so happy when that baby's here. I thought the darkest thing Kim has ever said to Chloe is in this episode when she says to Chloe, you can't focus on what's humiliating, which the subtext of that is you've had so much humiliation in your life. You just can't focus on it. Yeah. And also, the whole thing is that Chloe is not showing that much emotion. And her family is concerned for her. And she just says, it's like, well, yeah, what am I supposed to do? Like, freak out every time something happens? Because this is, like, my life. Like, I have to just, like, go about my day-to-day life and not just, like, be, like, sobbing all the time. Which is, like, yeah, fair. I love how... Kendall is out Courtney and Courtney with like the bullshit science. It's like, we're going to scan our brains and look for our emotions. Right. And the doctor is like, um, basically what you've got, what has happened between you and Tristan has given you brain trauma. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't be laughing. It's not funny at all. It's fucked up. Poor Chloe. My favorite part of this episode was the scene where Chris explained why she named everyone the K names. I thought you were going to say the part where Chris is talking to Kylie and MJ is in a mask just in the background while they have a full-on conversation. And and their grandmother's just sitting there. Well, also, Kendall obviously has COVID in this entire episode because she's wearing a mask for no reason when no one else is. Oh, I took that because she wears a mask when she gets on the plane and off the plane. Is she dyed her hair before Prada and she didn't want anyone to recognize her before the show? No, she was in the doctor's office and the doctor didn't have a mask on. Oh, that's and she Kim didn't have a mask on and she had a mask on. She fully had COVID and it was just like, whatever, I don't want to stop filming. But yeah, good up. I think the favorite thing that happened this week for you is that Kanye inexplicably changed his Instagram profile image to Kris Jenner. Yeah, then changed it back. And now he changed it again. Right before we started recording this, it was Chris again. And he basically said, what did he say in his stories? 
I posted Chris with thoughts of peace and respect. Let's change the narrative. It's like, well, forgive us. You gave it us no context at all. I don't think anyone thought it was like majorly sinister, but of course you would think he was trolling. Yeah, because our previous context of your commentary about your ex-mother-in-law is that she's a pimp that's going to sell your children into sexual servitude and that you once called her on Twitter a few years ago, Chris John Un. And you know what? She might just sell your kids into sexual servitude, but that's just part of the game. Again, it would be one thing if you married a woman and then her mother turned into a cult leader. You knew this family. This is what you loved about Kim. You rapped about her sex tape. Yeah, on several occasions. All right. That's everything. So next week, we're going to watch Blonde finally. Not finally. It only came out yesterday, but there's been... It feels like I've been waiting an eternity. There's been so much talk about it. So yeah, Blonde, Paris Fashion Week, and... Maybe I'll watch the Jeffrey Dahmer show. Should I? It is Daddy Ryan Murphy, right? It is Daddy Ryan Murphy. Maybe you can help me unpack my very conflicted attraction to Evan Peters in this show. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Boo. Also, can you start watching American Gigolo so I have someone (laughs) else to discuss this insane show with? How many episodes is it? They've only had three. Okay. I mean, Rosie O'Donnell is on it, so obviously I will watch it. And Rosie's in each episode. Great. Oh, and also, if you want even more of us, um, I don't know why anyone would, but we are going to be releasing a Patreon episode about Hocus Pocus 2 next week because it would be too much to fit into a normal show. So uh, what do they say in Hocus Pocus? I have no idea. Maybe now's a good time to admit I've never seen Hocus Pocus. Wait, what? Yeah, I'll, I'll watch it before. Lauren, the, that's insane. I'll watch it before the second film debuts. Why? I don't know. Why didn't you see it when you were a child, like a normal person? Because I wasn't a normal child. I was too busy watching Tim Burton's Batman on a loop. <laughs> okay, that's really wild. You should watch it. I, well, I have to. We're going to yeah. discuss it. Okay. All right, guys. On that revelation that has truly broken Chelsea's mind, we're going to sign off. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. (laughs)